Buddhist Geeks Discover the Emerging Face of Buddhism. Episode 258 A Heart Blown Open. In this episode, we speak with author and Zen practitioner Keith Martin Smith on his latest book, a biography of his Zen teacher, Junpo Dennis Kelly Roshi. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. Hello, Buddhist Geeks. This is Vince Horn, and I'm thrilled today to be joined in my home studio with uh, an old friend, Keith Martin-Smith. It's great to have you here, Keith. It's great to be here. Yeah, and I'll say just a little bit, and then we'll jump in about your background. Um, we're going to be speaking today a lot about a book that you wrote recently called A Heart Blown Open, uh, and it's on the life and practice of Zen master Junpo Dennis Kelly Roshi, who's also your teacher. That's correct, yeah. Awesome. And this came out recently. It's an incredible page turner. I was just saying before the interview, I really enjoyed reading this. Um, actually contributed a little blurb to it, which is <laughs> sweet of you to ask. <laughs> and kind of you to do. And um, yeah, so we're going to talk a, a lot about Junpo and, and his life. But I wanted to start off by first, you know, asking you a little bit about your background. You're primarily an author. That's your kind of your, your, your main gig, I understand. Correct, yeah. And, but then you also have like a long, rich history uh, in martial arts and kung fu. You teach martial arts, um, also Zen practitioner. So I'm curious, given your background being a writer and, and being into martial arts, how did you get into the Zen thing? And, and then how did you meet Junpo? I got into Buddhism when I was about 24, and uh, I saw a Vajrayana teacher named Lama Suring Everest, who's a student of Chagdu Tolka Rinpoche's. And I saw her speak in Philadelphia, and I think it was 98, and uh, just completely blew me away. Uh, just her presence, the depth of what she was saying. And the main thing was that what I realized when I was watching her speak was she had something that I wanted, which she had this deep equanimity and presence that I had never seen before in a human being. And I was just blown away. So I became a student of hers and of, of a Vajrayana practitioner and did that for about, you know, eight years or so, pretty, pretty steadily. And she eventually moved to Sao Paulo, Brazil. And um, so I had much uh, less frequent access to her and her teachings. And I went through a divorce in 2005 and moved to Boulder in 2006. And when I was out here, uh, I was at Boulder Integral, which was run by Jeff Saltzman, used to work for Ken Wilber. And uh, there was an event there, and Junpo was there. And uh, he was there just as a participant, the same as I was. There were about 35 of us there. And uh, we were in a group of four. And I was in a group, it was me, my friend Jason Lang, and uh, Junpo, who I'd never met, and Diane Mushu Hamilton, sensei. So it was interesting, to say the least. And Junpo went first and introduced himself, and we were supposed to talk about who we were, why we were there, and what integral meant to us. So he kind of leans back, and he says, yeah, they, they call me Junpo these days. I'm supposed to be some kind of a Roshi. And I kind of immediately cocked my head, like, huh. And he said, yeah, a couple years ago, I started fucking somebody I shouldn't have been fucking and a student of mine. And I fucked up her marriage, I fucked up my marriage, almost destroyed my entire sangha, everything I'd spent a lifetime building. 
So at 64 years old, I was back doing small self shit again. So I'm here to figure out if Integral can explain what the fuck happened to me. <laughs> wow. And that, that is literally how I met him, exactly what came out of his mouth. I, and I, I'd never heard anyone, much less a Zen master and Roshi, speak with that level of candor and, and uh, ownership. So I was very intrigued. Nice. And so that, I guess, led in some ways for you to kind of experiment with his teaching or something like that. And you just kind of got in that way, huh? Exactly. Yeah. Wow. He, every time he would come back to Boulder that year, 2007, I would see him speak and became intrigued by his, his work and what he was offering. And then just the kind of, this kind of very bizarre personality that I wasn't used to seeing with a, with a spiritual teacher, very, mm. very candid, you know, he's not, not vulgar, but he's, he's very candid and speaks very uh, plainly at times. And, um, but with a lot of philosophical sophistication and insight, but also with kind of more of kind of a, the way someone that was raised in a blue collar environment would speak. Right. So not a lot of flourish and, and a lot of emotional honesty. Hmm. And how did you, cause I know uh, toward the end of the book, you kind of mentioned one story of how you sort of decided to write the book, I think. And I'm curious uh, what brought you to, writing this book and how, and how did you decide like I'm going to spend all this time listening to this guy's story and and helping him craft it into a book I mean it's a huge project yeah and I'd never done a, a memoir biography or anything like that what happened was that we I had known him for about a year and a half or two years I guess and um, he invited me to Massachusetts he flew me out there and basically said I want to tell you my life story and if it's a fit then you can write the story, and if not, don't worry about it. So, so he flew me out to Massachusetts, and we spent basically two days, two solid days, where he just downloaded his entire life. And I recorded it with a digital recorder and took notes. And then at the end of that, you know, I, I, I couldn't believe the, the life that he lived. It was just beyond extraordinary. So I, I readily agreed to write his life story. And then the original plan was, was to take a year to do it, but it wasn't enough time, so I ended up having to take two years. So... So I ended up selling my house that I owned and, and putting a lot of my own money into the project because wow. it, it was an amazing story that had to be told. All right. Well, we need to get some of that recouped here. So, <laughs> <laughs> Exactly right. <laughs> so the first thing I was struck by when I was reading the book, and you, you, you just mentioned this, which is, I mean, this guy has lived an insane life. That, that's how I would put it. I mean, when I was reading it, I was like, you know, even after the first couple chapters, I was like, whoa, that's a full life in that first two chapters. Right. And then by the end of the book, it's like, this guy's lived like 10 normal lives. Yeah. And it didn't in any way line up with the stereotypes that I think most people and even myself hold about Zen or Zen teachers or Zen masters. You know, there's the image of like the Zen master, like solo hermit up in the hut, you know, just sitting right, there. Right. And that is not the life that he's lived, although he's done a ton of Zen training and practice, of course. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I just wondered what you what you made of that as you're talking to him, like this, this incredibly full, rich life um, with so many, you know, amazing things. And then so many things you're like, whoa, that guy was like a criminal for a certain period of time. <laughs> Yeah, I mean it's it's a it's a highly unusual story for for someone who became a high-ranking Zen master. You know, it 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 really it's more of a Hunter S. Thompson, you know, kind of road movie in a, in a lot of ways is how his life reads. It's a product of the '60s. You know, uh, ran a major LSD manufacturing family. You know, traveled around the world. Was in was a in a polyamory. You know, way back before that was even really a word in the popular vernacular. 
you know, made and spent millions of dollars by, by 1975, then was on the run for five years. And so it's on the surface, it's like there's this kind of very wild, very charismatic, very much Enneagram 7 enthusiast kind of running through his own life and, and, and experiencing almost anything that he can. But I also learned there was a, it wasn't quite that simple as I began to look at it, which there really are, were and are two sides to him. You know, underneath of that, there was this deep desire to uncover who he really was and what life really was about. And while there was a lot of hedonism and excess, it really was fueled by a desire to get to know what was driving him and what was driving his mind. And, and so throughout you know, his, his use of drugs, for instance, through the 60s, was always experimental and designed to help him understand his own consciousness. It, it, they were almost always done ceremonially and, uh, and for greater insight. And, and that really... You know, that became clear in his life in the mid-70s when a lot of his friends began to either die or go to jail or, you know, the, the split between the, the 60s counterculture that was rooted in consciousness expansion and experimentation and then the 60s counterculture that was rooted in escape and anti-authoritarianism. You know, th- those two things really became, those splits became obvious in, in him. Mm. And, uh, and he was on the first track. So we, so it was in the seventies that he began training with Trumpka and and he trained with Suzuki Roshi, he trained with Edo Shimano Roshi, Patabi Joyce. You know, it was a very impressive list of, of people he was training with, even though he was quite wealthy and uh you know, living this kind of very unusual double life. Mm. You know, another thing that I found really interesting is there are so many really deep insights, even going back to childhood, well before he was exposed to Zen. Mm. And I found that really interesting that from the beginning there was a recognition of of this thing that he was looking for through all these different avenues, um, through LSD, like you mentioned, through um, just living life, trying to find this thing through Zen. That's really interesting because it makes me think there had to be a way in which he recognized this wasn't about Zen. This was about something more fundamental, that Zen was sort of a, a, a vehicle for realizing or LSD was a vehicle for having temporary recognition of or something curious what you think about that yeah yeah i think i think that's exactly right it was when he was just a toddler he he had a really profound uh, basically a non-dual experience it was one of his first memories in response to some uh, an abusive thing that was going on uh, in his house that being one of his first memories it laid down kind of in his forming gray matter this experience of safety and security and peace that was outside of time and this kind of deep mindful presence that he knew was was who he really was but yeah he was always trying to get back to that he was always trying to discover what that was and initially lsd seemed like it was the way to do it because it could really create powerful state experiences but what drove him eventually slightly crazy was that he you couldn't hold on to those experiences and the 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 depth of the insight would always fade with time and um yeah, so he he was drawn towards Zen because because Zen offered a very pure practice to attain the same result that you could do, you know, through a disciplined practice and not rely on external exogenics. Mm. That's really cool. And you know, you just mentioned this that even that early experience was sort of triggered by like a kind of traumatic situation, and that's also one of the themes that seems to run through this this story is like these breaking points, these really intense situations, and then something will happen. And it seemed like Jumpo would sort of snap in a certain way. And yet in retrospect, like it seemed like that snap was a good thing. It ended up being like a really key moment or pivotal moment in his life. And 
what I was struck by is how much courage it actually seemed to really take in those moments because it's almost like he had to just keep facing death. And I, as I was reading it, I had the thought, like, I wonder if I would have been able to, mm-hmm. you know, to, to face this. Like, this seems really intense. Right. Uh, and yet it seems like that's, that theme is actually key to some way that the spiritual path too. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's I think that's for many of us on the path that, that is very much a part of it, or, or what brought us here. Um, but for him, yeah, it, again, it's it's kind of again and again. You know, when he was in prison in 1980 for manufacturing LSD, spent a year in prison, and he had a really powerful satori there. You know, as he was kind of literally imprisoned and realized had a real insight about how his suffering was really created as a product of his own thoughts and thought patterns. And that freedom was something that you could only generate internally. So that was one response to an extreme stressor. Mm. Um, and he had, he had another really powerful insight when in the, in the late 80s, he, he really reached a point where he was a Zen priest. He was a, about 45 years old. And uh, he had a, what basically was close to a mental breakdown because he realized that he was still almost entirely conditioned. That even though he'd been training in various spiritual practices for over 20 years and had tremendous experiences and in, in spiritual insight, there was still a, a, a painful amount of conditioning that caused him to really not actually be free at all. And, and when he saw that, it was, it was really a, a real pain point in his life. And he had never wanted to surrender fully to a teacher because of his upbringing. And in response to that crisis, he, he decided for the first time that he would fully surrender to, to uh, Edo Shimano Roshi. And that was when he went into the monastery for, for six years and spent six years staring at the wall. Um, so just another, those are just two examples, but there's, there's plenty in his life where yeah, you know, a, a crisis would arise and he would, he would really choose to turn into it fully and, and take the lesson. Yeah, that's really cool. And it's, it's interesting because before that time with Edo, he was like pretty anti-authoritarian, right? Like that was one of his key like kind of personality traits. Like I ain't you know, yeah. going to... Do what this person says just because. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a big part of the '60s counterculture that yeah. he steeped in, but it also his own upbringing. You know, he was he was raised he raised in an abusive household and and in an abusive uh, you know kind of a Catholic church upbringing, and uh, so he hated authority and hated institutions, and uh, so he he was always looking for profound teachings, but he wasn't really that interested in the in the teacher. And he really thought LSD, its main way that it would serve people would be by empowering them so they wouldn't need teachers and wouldn't need the institutions. You could have the insight for yourself. And it would kind of deconstruct the whole, the whole power structure that spirituality was built on. Right, like sort of decentralizing it in some way. Yeah, it was like a great egalitarian tool. Right, right. And, and it was when he realized that LSD caused only a manic spiritual insight, but not mm. a stable insight, and also realized that he was mostly psychologically conditioned and reactive and wasn't really free. Mm. Then he thought, okay, it's time. I, I have to surrender this idea that I don't need a teacher. Mm. And so he went to the monastery seeking freedom, you know, not, not just spiritual freedom, but freedom from his conditioned mind, freedom from his small self. He really wanted to get to figure out why he was such a condi- deeply conditioned man. When life conditions arose and he would react very strongly, and as we all do, but he, he really saw it for the first time, just how deep the conditioning went. Mm. Mm. I think you know this is sort of connected and it certainly ties in with with the themes we've been talking about but um one thing i was really struck with is that at a certain point after his zen training you know which is very traditional like a very traditional rinzai 
uh, going through the koan system with Edo Shimano, which is actually really cool to see a little bit of the inside view of what that kind of training is like and kind of what the essence of it is about. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of scenes set in the monastery, so yeah. Yeah, and it's incredible. I mean, there's there's a way in which like the Zen koan thing is, you know, it's like do or die time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's, 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 as Jhumpo often says, this is life and death. Nice, nice. So at a certain point, he'd done this really intensive training. He'd become a teacher um, under Edo Shimano. And at some point, it seemed like he recognized there was a limit to the koan training and how it had uh, affected his conditioning. Like somehow there was something missing. It didn't go all the way through into certain areas of his life, like into his relationships or into some aspects of his psychology. And that was a really interesting insight. And it also led to his own innovations to the koan system. That's right. And I wondered if you could share a bit about kind of the background of how that arose and then also what what this new system is that he's teaching and, and how it's different than the kind of traditional style. Sure, yeah. So so there's... Um, um, when Junpo was at the monastery, he really was struck by how neurotic so many of the people there were. And what he began to realize over the six years that he was there was that a lot of practitioners that go to that extreme are looking to get away from some part of themselves. So they're really, they're, they're, it's, it's now what we know as spiritual bypassing, but, but the idea is that I'll wake up beyond my pain and contraction so I don't have to feel anymore. I don't have to feel that anymore. Uh, you know, I don't have to actually go into my sexual uh, indiscretions or my sexual shadow or, or the abuse that I had as, as a child or whatever it might be that you really just want to get away from all that stuff. So he he was really struck by the fact that when he, at 50 years old, became a Roshi, that he realized that he still was deeply conditioned, that he'd spent six years in the monastery hoping to get away from this deep psychological conditioning and, and had really radically deepened his insight, you know, really radically woken up. But it still wasn't enough to, to touch huge parts of his small self. So he set out in the early 90s to do a lot of psychological shadow work, work the, the Hoffman process, which is a family dynamic process, the Elia process, and, and a whole bunch of other things, the Mankind Project, and really set to, to uncover his own shadows and his own conditioning and see how his upbringing had really created a lot of the crazy dynamic energy that was him and, and the basic narcissism that drove a lot of his actions. There's actually, as, as a sub-story, he went to see the Dalai Lama in, in the mid-90s. And this, this, this is a great story related to this topic. And, uh, or as he says, we, we went to go see Dad. Um, <laughs> so it was, it, was, it, was, it was all the first generation of spiritual teachers, about 50 people. And, and they were, uh, I believe they were Dharm, Dharmsala. And um, so one of the people there, one of the American teachers, raised his hand and asked a question about one of the Dalai Lama's senior students who was, I believe, a llama and had been in trouble for having sex with his students and created a whole bunch of problems back here in the States. And so he asked the Dalai Lama how the Dalai Lama would explain this problem. And the Dalai Lama looked at him and said, well, his insight isn't deep enough. And so everyone kind of nodded their heads and, and was quiet. And so Junpo said he's sitting there and he's, he's fussing in his chair and he's, you know, finally he can't stand it anymore. He raises his hand and they bring the microphone over. And he says, I beg your pardon, your holiness, but I have to say something here. He said, yes, yes. He said, well, bullshit. And uh, he said, the Dalai Lama smiled, you know, and, and, and I, he said, it's, I, it's bullshit. Uh, he said, you know, this guy trained for 30 years. He's trained. He did t a 10-year cave retreat. 
he trained with you personally. He, he's, I've met him. His insight is incredibly deep. I, I don't buy it. And he said the Dalai Lama looked at him and smiled and said, uh, that's because your insight isn't deep enough. Hmm. So this really was, this was a fundamental problem that Jhumpa set out to solve. Was insight alone enough or did it take a combination? And so that's really what, what the 90s and early 2000s were about was his exploration of that koan that, that he felt he was handed. Nice. And, and I know kind of out of some of that exploration came like a whole new system of koans, like social koans, things that were more about relationships, which is, I guess there's probably some of that in the Zen school, but yes, yes, absolutely. Um, it seemed like these were maybe more contemporary and maybe more relevant to like the modern psychology. Um, and I'm curious, you know, about that because I, I imagine that you've done some of these um, trainings with him, these kind of more modern innovations, I guess you could say. And I'm curious about that because that, that, that's, of course, we love to explore innovations here. And, it, you know, it's one that's yeah, yeah. very fascinating. Yeah. Well, what he came up with, what Jhumpa's answer to the Dalai Lama's question was that the Dalai Lama was correct. That if your insight is deep enough, awake is awake, period. There's nothing outside of awakened consciousness by definition. But only a handful, I mean, a handful of people in generation will wake up that deeply. And for the rest of us, we have to do the hard work of awakening. So, yeah, what he set to do with, with the Mondo process that he created was to help not only do insight koans that allow awakening to occur, but also so that we can take a look at the ripple effect that we're creating in our lives. So we look at our relationships, the ripples we're creating in our relationships. And that includes with, obviously, with other people, but also with the environment and things like that. So, so a big part of his work was, was waking up is not enough. You know, you, waking up is part of it. Growing up is another part, which, mm. is, which is looking at your, your shadow material. But then showing up. How do you show up in your own life as a so-called awakened being, as an integral being, as whatever it is? You know, what, what are you doing in your personal and environmental relationships? And then I, I guess the most recent iteration of that is something he's calling Mondo Zen. Right. And maybe just to close, I'm wondering if you could describe a little bit about what it's like training in, in Mondo, Mondo Zen. What does Mondo mean, too? I'm uh, well, Mondo's a, a dialectic, so okay. it's, it's, a, it's a dialogue process. So the Mondo process is designed to be done with a, basically a facilitator, mm. and, uh, and you work 13 koans. Mm. And the first 10 koans are all about insight and claiming your own insight. So it's about you know, pointing out what's right under your nose, which is your, your pristine, awakened state that's arising right now. So that's very, very classic Zen. That's, that's, the, that's the baby that he threw out the bathwater, which was all the imperial, you know, patriarchal, sexist, et cetera, things that were, that were in line with a lot of traditional um, Zen. Mm. And then the last three koans are about emotional maturity. So mm. it has to do with, with because what, he's, what he sees is that people, more and more people are genuinely awakening, that, that there are more and more awakened beings walking around, more people that are having Kensho experiences. But they're not integrating that with any kind of sense of emotional maturity or insight. So anger and shame and jealousy and these other emotions will come in and completely knock them off their center. And their insight can't penetrate that. So the last three koans are designed to really reprogram people to understand 
the fundamental nature of their emotions as merely as information that's arising. And for them to go deeper than the conditioning, so to see that anger, for instance, is really about deep caring. You know, you, you can't get angry. It's impossible to get angry if you don't care. It, it doesn't happen. So if it's true that you care, you know, that, then why would you react violently with anger? You know, why would you make a lot of noise and all that? It doesn't really make any sense when you, you could choose to respond from that place of deep caring. It's just as one example, for instance. So, and in my own life, and, and a lot of people that I've trained with him, it's revolutionized their relationships because this emotional maturity piece is really an enlightened response to so-called negative conditioned emotional reaction. And by cutting under it, you really see what's there, which is almost always just deep caring. Mm, yeah, it reminds me, uh, there's a teacher I've hung out a lot with and he's, you know, classically trained 30, 40 years, you know, 10 years of retreat. Right. And at one point we were sitting at dinner and he said, uh, would it surprise you if I told you that I'm almost everything I do is motivated by anger? <laughs> and, but, but he tied it into exactly what you're saying that, that anger is often it's deep care actually, right. that that's not being felt fully. Right, and anger doesn't have to be violence, right? That, that's, where it gets, that's where it gets very confused in our culture, that, that you can be angry if, angry if anger is an expression of deep clarity of mind and deep concern and maybe a little bit of fear, then anger is very, very healthy. But if anger is a lot of noise and violence and objectification of the other person, then it's, it's very, very destructive. And it doesn't help because it doesn't honor what you're really feeling. It's just a lot of noise. Mm-hmm. So cool. yeah, so, so that's really been his, his whole, Junpo's whole teaching, the whole Mondo process is the integration of spiritual insight with, with Western psychological intelligence and basic emotional maturity. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference. Hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.